Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Commerce Cast, uh, which is an NCR Greenhouse podcast production. Uh, it's where we bring together industry experts to discuss the latest trends and insight in the world of retail, hospitality, and self-directed banking. NCR Greenhouse is part of NCR Corporation, which is one of the leading technology and platform providers for these particular industries. My name is Ishmael Amla. I'm the Executive Vice President responsible for consulting, advisory, and technology services for NCR worldwide. And I'm honored to introduce our special guest joining us today on the podcast. Scott Galloway is a renowned author, entrepreneur, and professor at NYU Stern School of Business. He's a leading expert on the intersection of technology, business, and culture, and has authored several best-selling books, including The Four and Post-Corona. He's a sought-after speaker and commentator on topics ranging from digital disruption and innovation to marketing and entrepreneurship. In today's episode, we'll be diving deep into the future of retail and the impact of technology disruption on the industry. We want to explore a little bit of the latest trends and innovations shaping the retail landscape, and it'll be great to get some insight on how retailers can stay competitive and thrive in the digital age. I'd love to also to look ahead to 2023 and beyond and discuss a little bit some predictions on what might be coming up for retail industry in the coming years. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation and explore the exciting and ever-evolving world of retail with Scott Galloway. Scott, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Uh, Ishmael, it's good to be with you. Uh, we're thrilled to have you uh, to share insights with some of our speakers. I'm going to start with uh, some of the uh, in, in, interviews you did during the pandemic, and you talked mm-hmm. about what post-pandemic retail might look like. Mm-hmm. You talked about stores as warehouses, membership models, innovation accelerated, even as algorithmically driven commerce, which is difficult to say. When you look back, what do you think about those predictions? And you know, did did, did what happened? Is that what you thought was going to happen, or did things change? So probably the biggest myths, if you will, is I thought that I saw uh, some central themes in the pandemic. The first is dispersion, and that is we would push work away from offices and distribute it out to homes. That has obviously happened. But I also saw that retail would be pushed out uh, at a greater pace to our phones and our laptops and our smart speakers that e-commerce would accelerate even faster than it had uh, over the last, call it 20, 25 years. And it did, it accelerated dramatically. Uh, but what ha- has happened is in the last year, 18 months, as uh, the pandemic has waned, e-commerce has actually um, regressed to a line of where it would have been had there been no pandemic. Mm. So it, it popped up, but it, now it's back to where if you just looked at e-commerce growth and you didn't see the last two and a half years, it would be where you would have predicted it would be in 2019. There's a few changes that it probably accelerated um, structurally, and that is we're just further ahead than we would have been otherwise, specifically in grocery uh, and then home delivery of food. But I missed it there. I thought that this was going to be a jump step that would be enduring, and it isn't. Um, I would say that you would probably... I probably overestimated the disruption and underestimated the strength of traditional brick and mortar retail. So, you know, mm-hmm. I got that wrong. The other stuff, multi-channel retail, um, you know, the the importance of e- of 
the internet predicting, you know, or informing people even when they go into the store. You know, that stuff's all played out, but I don't know if, if any of that were very dramatic predictions. I think we all saw that coming. Yeah. And when you think, talk about the e-commerce actually reverting back, if you like, to the trajectory, do you draw any conclusions from that? Is it about the consumer wanting to wanting more physical contact? Is it a social interaction role that retailers play? Is there, is there anything you think about when you think about that? Yeah, Ishmael, I think you're onto something. I think that just anthropologically, we're mammals. We crave touch, we crave contact. The three predictors of your life expectancy are in order, reverse order, your genetics. People think your genetics uh, have more to do with your life expectancy than they actually do. And people use it as an excuse so they can smoke and drink and abuse their bodies because, you know, their uncle lived to 95. Uh, number two is um, lifestyle, you know, how you actually live your life. But number one is how social you are. You would rather yeah. be a smoker and have friends than be a non-smoker and have no friends. And I think yeah. so many of us are spending so much more time at home because of remote work. And generally speaking, the polarization of our society and greater, greater division and sort of rage and a lack of trust of our institutions, lack of trust of each other, uh, fomented by a bunch of things, but kind of cable news and social media algorithms, that we're not going out as much. We're not finding as many points of inspiration. And if you think outside of really wonderful social moments of gatherings with people. If you think about, I don't know, really incredible pieces of media, one of the nearest within reach pieces of inspiration is to go into an Apple store. I go into Apple stores even when I don't want anything. You know, I occasionally go into a Lululemon store just to kind of check it out. And I'm really into things and TV. So when my family is shopping at Super Target, I'll go over to Best Buy and just look around. I find it inspiring and entertaining. So I think just the chance to be around other people, go to, go to you know, I almost call them mini amusement parks, right? It's yeah. It seems like retail, loosely speaking, is bifurcating into efficiency. You know, keep it really bare, really efficient, really fast, really put the groceries in my car when I pull into a Walmart parking lot no you know have the trust that it's the lowest price or a near lowest price mm. or an experience kind of inspire me but yeah i think people do want to i mean restaurants are killing it again um so it it does feel it does feel there's something there that people want to herd and it's just a quick and easy way you're on your way home or you're out you see a sephora you know spas that kind of stuff are all, all are all really strong again yeah, I was I was reading actually a couple of weeks ago that one of the major retailers here in the UK have actually they went total self checkout, and they've now reintroduced uh, lanes with uh, people staffing there because their customers have asked for it. They, people want to queue up. People hmm. want to queue up for to pay for their goods and services. Part of one of the reasons, of course, what you just described there, Scott, which is incredible, but I can definitely resonates with me. Well, have you noticed? And this is an ageist statement, but it's true. Have you noticed when you're at a CVS or a place, old people start talking to the cash register, the, the cashier. They engage in a conversation. And it's it's really, um, it's a little bit upsetting or sad, but if you look at how much time we spend with our friends, it peaks at like 22. You know, you're senior in college, you're just spending a ton of time with your friends. 
the time you spend with coworkers goes up and up and up and peaks at like 55 or 60 and then you retire and it goes way down. Hmm. The time you spend with your mate uh, is a lot in the beginning, troughs a little bit as you're both working and raising kids, then it goes up again and then it collapses when one of them obviously passes away. Hmm. And the amount of time that people spend by themselves is just a straight line up and it's really sad. The older you get, the more time you are alone. And so you see, when you see someone over the, and it's made me a lot more patient, when you see someone over the age of 70 or 80, they're just spending too much time alone. Yeah. And so any, any sort of contact, any chance to slow down and talk to somebody, I think they really appreciate. Whereas all of us are trying to find reasons just to get in and out of retail so we can get back to our kids or get back to making money, whatever it might be. But I think we're desperate. I mean... I would argue it's probably one of the biggest crises we're facing right now. I think we're really desperate for contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder whether that is one of the things that uh, retailers can use to compete against the big juggernauts you've talked about in some of your speeches, you know, the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Alibaba. Because, um, I mean, how do, you, how do you compete against that environment? Um, it, it, have you seen retailers come up with approaches to compete really well there are there are other winners i mean amazon i mean if you think about it amazon sucked um a lot of oxygen and energy out of the ecosystem from just a sheer market share standpoint mm -hmm. but the phenomena that has really disrupted retail is that amazon's storytelling or specifically their ceo's vision of the company drew so much market capitalization. You know, the average retailer trades at eight to 12 times EBITDA or profits. And for most of its life, Amazon's traded between 30 and 60. Mm -hmm. So all the capital you need to invest in growth and innovation and expansion, you know, it kind of, there wasn't a lot of it because it all went to one player. But if you think about, I mean, the reality is there's some been some exceptionally strong retail and um, the majority of them just haven't recognized the the fruits of it because amazon is now worth more i bet amazon is worth more than all of your european retail combined probably mm -hmm. but you have um, different business models so a retailer that is kind of doesn't get nearly the attention of amazon but it's probably in many ways as equally successful uh, successful as costco and mm -hmm. it's a different business model pay us whatever i don't know what even know what it is 99 bucks a year and you have utter certainty that this is the lowest price and you feel like you're getting a deal every time you walk in and you're willing to kind of do a lot of your own things that the retailer usually does for you and it's 99 dollars a month um, and i think there's going to be more of it kind of an amazon prime is sort of the original i call it recurring revenue bundle or rundle membership programs are really powerful because we have a flaw in our species and that is time goes a lot faster than we think it will and that is, and it's not, maybe it's because our reference point grows as we get older, or maybe it's, I think it's more anthropological as we, you know, 99.9% .9 of our species existence on this earth, our average life expectancy was kind of like 34, 35. It isn't until the last century that it accelerated. The year I was born, the average life expectancy in China was 47. It's now 77. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think our mind, our, our, our brain is just hardwired for, you're not going to be here very long. So we think time goes much faster than it does. And when, that's one of the problems with saving in America and saving in Western Europe is people just can't imagine doing anything with a 20 or 30 year time horizon, not recognizing 
I mean, you look like you're younger than me, but we're kind of in the same generation. You just, mm. you just can't get over talking to any old person. It's like, has time gone really slow? And I'm like, what are you kidding? I was in college yesterday. It's flown by. And yeah. as a result, a membership model is so powerful because you join a gym. I'm a member of Equinox, which is this Tony gym in New York. And they have just one or two in London. I think, well, I work out three, four times a week. That's 12 or 16 times. It's $200. That's 15 bucks every time I go. That's a deal. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. I'm on the road one to two weeks uh, a month. I don't work out as much as I'd like. I'm probably, I'm probably in the actual Equinox three to five times. I'm spending 50 bucks, 50 to 80 bucks every time I walk in that place. But you don't do that math. One of the great flaws in our species to be leveraged by retail in every business is to attach your business model to the clock as opposed to individual transactions because time will go faster than their anticipated transactions. Fascinating. Do you think, Scott, where do you sit on the, this discussion as to whether policymakers should play a part in creating more competition for the Amazons of the world? Um, or is it, you know, best man wins? Where, where do you sit on that? Oh, I, I, <laughs> I believe Amazon should be broken up. I've said this for a long time. I think that Amazon's yeah. playbook was pretty simple. They found this amazing business called the cloud. They had the capital and the experience managing their own data to build this unbelievable business called AWS, which was also hugely profitable. And they used it to subsidize a retail platform and deliver a service through most of the odds at a price that other retailers just couldn't compete with. And then once the majority of competitors who could, who could really offer a threat to them in e-commerce had been swept off the planet, they started raising their prices. And now if you're on their third-party platform, the percentage of your price that you have to fork over to Amazon between fulfillment and getting in the golden buy box and basically the kind of vig you have to pay in Amazon marketing, um, they now take over half the fee. And so it's a classic mm -hmm. monopoly playbook, sweep everyone off the deck and then start raising prices. I think retail would have had a lot more innovation and we don't know what we don't know. We don't know who else would have propped up. And Amazon now yeah. takes 50 cents on the e-commerce dollar. That's just not healthy. That means they have too much power. And you know, people would argue, but consumers love it. It's brought down prices. We don't know what else would have emerged. And also retailers, there's just been a gigantic transfer of wealth from other retailers and smaller retailers to Amazon. And there'll be well-publicized story of some small brand that blew up on Amazon. But slowly but surely, when Amazon controls access to the consumer and owns your data, you know, owns, it can dictate terms, and you really, your business is sort of dependent, you have one channel of distribution, they do, it's irresistible to do what they've done, and that is raise the taxes on the retailer. They did it so much that there was opportunity, and Shopify came in and built an amazing business sort of going the other way, saying, mm. keep, you decide your packaging, you keep your data, you maintain the relationship with the end consumer, you know, you can put in the box whatever you want. We're literally just a, a service provider. But, oh, I, I, for a long time, I've been calling for the breakup of Amazon. I think it would have resulted in more tax revenue, more uh, competition, more offerings. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, mm -hmm. I, I think we're asleep at the switch when it comes to antitrust. And, and do you think um, there will be a inflection point where that sort of intervention 
could, should happen. Uh, you, you, I, I, I hear it that it should perhaps happen. Do you think it could happen? Do you think there's the political will to make that happen? Probably not. Um, mm. I think if it happens, it'll happen at Google, where you know the search right. has ninety-three percent share and sort of two-thirds of all dollars, digital marketing dollars, touch Google at one point. And the innovation mm. there—it's just strange with this AI and ChatGPT. All of a sudden, it feels like Google hasn't innovated in a decade. I mean, it's just weird yeah. that. All of a sudden, I don't know if you feel this way, you kind of wake up after seeing yeah. ChatGPT and everything's going on, you're like, well, you know what? Google hasn't really improved in a decade. <laughs> it's just the same, yeah. it's the exact same service in a 10 years. And like, who else has thrived, managed to triple their shareholder value? And like, well, it's clearly a monopoly. Amazon, because of the slowdown, I mean, the, the folks that say the market takes care of itself will have a lot to point to right now because Amazon's just delayed the construction of their second headquarters in Virginia. The stock has gone down 40% in the last 12 months. You know, they would point to, well, like every market, people have come in and com competed against them. I would argue in the last 10 years that retail has unnaturally uh, lost a lot of good players and there has been a lack of investment in innovation because people just don't feel like they can compete against Amazon. I mean, it's just, mm. um, there's just sort of, it's, and a lot of people, you know, you either go to work for Amazon, I, I teach, when, I, you know, when I'm teaching, I have two to 300 kids in my class. In terms of retail, they either go to Amazon, a few of them go to Walmart, or they don't go into retail. Because retail is considered, quite frankly, just a shitty place to invest or work if you're really mm. skilled. It's like, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult business. Yeah. And I think there's one player and sort of one player who's big enough to compete and that's Walmart and everyone else. It's like, unless you have just a passion for a specific category, you don't go into it. So uh, I think the last 10 years have been really difficult for retail. I think Amazon was uh, allowed to engage in monopoly, antitrust, predatory pricing behavior. Um, but I've been predicting the breakup of all of these companies for a long time, and I've been wrong. It does feel like the FTC is stirring from its kind of 30-year slumber, and they're filing cases mm -hmm. and trying to block mergers. And But you know, Amazon has more full-time lobbyists living in D.C. than there are sitting U.S. senators. And every day, they present senators and congresspeople with a very compelling offer, and it goes something like this. We believe in your vision for America, Representative Smith, and we'd like to be very supportive. Um, donations, events for you. And the representative said, well, what do you want in return? What I want in return is nothing. And what I mean by that is that when antitrust movements come across your desk, you don't even have to fight it overtly. Just ask for really thoughtful questions and express concerns and, and ask question after question and follow up. And these things literally just die in committee. Mm. Incredible. And that's, that's an incredible offer to an elected representative. You don't have to say you can express concerns around anti-competitive behavior and say, but I have a few things around not getting in the way of capitalism and just keep asking questions. And I think that's what's happened. I think that big tech has essentially washed over Washington with money because of Citizens United the player, the incumbent wins 93 to 95% of the time and the player with the most money almost always wins. So it's just incredibly important to 
um, solicit the deepest pockets. And people would argue, well, money is a form of representation. It is, but some companies yeah. just have a lot more representation than others. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating, actually, uh, and really powerful the way you describe it there uh, as to why change isn't happening as you might expect. Uh, and, and your point about ChatGPT and Google is such a true one. When you look at if, if this is the future of search, what have Google been doing over the last decade almost? Is, uh, and is that business about to be disrupted? Uh, it's a fascinating space at the moment. It's just that in terms yep. of, sorry, go on. Well, just, there will be, I can just see it coming. You can predict in business web case studies where we kind of write this sanitized story of what happened at a company <laughs> and to demonstrate a point. And the chat GPT Google um, scenario will be like case study number one in, in disruption. And that is disruption is basically you're trying to protect legacy assets so you don't vigorously go after disruption because you have such a great business why on earth would you disrupt yourself and a lot of the technologies in ChatGPT were actually developed at google and mm -hmm. the fact that they didn't roll this out first but it, it, you know you just it's just very hard to threaten 150 billion i mean if you think about what AI is and the promise of AI as it relates to search. What Google does is you type in, okay, what is the best, you know, checkout technology at a retail store? And yeah. you're gonna see 3,000 results in 0 0.0055 seconds. Yeah. And then it's up to you to find which five or six results are somewhere between 10 and 80% accurate. Maybe, maybe you can get to 90. And it's a lot of time and energy. And what you realize is the first page on a, on a query like that, where there's a lot of money based on your decision, basically the first page is all pay to play. It all takes you, it's all either advertising or it takes you to places that, that Google can further monetize. Mm. So what ChatGPT is saying, pay us 20 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month. And rather than giving you 3,000 answers that are somewhere between 10 and 90% accurate, we're gonna do our best just to give you one answer that mm -hmm. takes no searching and is 60, 70% accurate. It's not, I mean, when you read these results, you go, that's wrong. But consumers are just fatigued of trying, you know, it's like when you type in your Google query, that's when the work starts. Mm -hmm. And ChatGPT is saying, I have an idea. We'll give you the, what we think is the best one answer. And even yeah. if it's not, 100% accurate, you, we're gonna give you the confidence that our heart's in the right place. It's not paid, nothing in this answer was bought for or was paid right. for. Yeah, We might be wrong, but our heart's in the right place and we're gonna to attempt to mm -hmm. give you the one answer. Yeah, and, and, that, and, and that idea of developing this trust-based relationship, uh, I hate to say it, but it's new, <laughs> you know, in the world of yeah. search and social media and so on, and can be quite powerful. Hundred percent. That if you think about Ishmael, the original sin of the internet, the original sin of the internet was that it, basically the internet has been financed. The entire internet has mostly been financed by advertising, mm. and so built into the DNA of the internet was just outstanding. Uh, um, ad stack tools yeah. that could figure out if and when you were open to buying something. Oh, your 
configuring a configuring an Audi A6 will drop a cookie and start following you around the internet and serving you up ads for the right Audi that you want at the right time. So the marketing, basically advertising has driven and, and financed the internet. Now, the original sin was, there's no reason we couldn't have had, but we didn't, really robust micropayments that say, oh, I want this. It takes a scan of my iris, it's on the way. Right. Oh, I want to read this article. I trust Reuters. I trust the BBC. I trust the Economist. Click on this article. Confirm you want it. Four cents. Charge your credit card. Super easy. But because it didn't go payments, it went advertising. The algorithms realize, okay, it's not about getting people to pay for content. It's about getting people to look at things. It's about garnering their attention. And when I think about emissions, Anytime you take one substance and arbitrage it or transition it into another substance to create economic value, whether it's petroleum into oil, whether it's plant-based calories into beef-based calories, you're gonna have externalities. You're gonna have emissions. You're gonna have deforestation, methane, carbon. I would argue the most noxious emission over the last 30 years, I think 99% of people would say it's carbon. I would argue that it's rage from an ad-based ecosystem that creates polarization. And that is the internet basically survives and is financed by our ability or their ability to maintain our attention. And how do they do that? They do that by inspiring us, that's good. They do this by making us more anxious and they do that by making us more angry in reverse order. Right? Anger is the thing that keeps your attention the most. The reason I'm addicted to Twitter is because I'm desperate for other people's affirmation and people say nice things about me. But more than anything, on a regular basis, a healthy number of people say really mean things about me. Mm. And it creates a certain level of rage and addiction. Mm. And what you have is a nation and a society that has increasingly become polarized. Our teens are depressed. Our elections are more violent and more polarized than ever. And in the US, we passed a climate bill that claims that we're gonna reduce our carbon emissions by 40% by the turn of the decade. I don't know if it would even be possible to reduce the polarization and mistrust we now have for each other in our institutions by 40% by the end of the decade. So if you go back, the real original sin was the ad stack was the focus as opposed to micropayments. Mm. And, and as you look forward, do you think technology, ChatGPT being one example, Scott, but is it, is, is, are there other technologies you're really excited about that could change the, the balance you talk about? Yeah, I am. I am excited about AI. I, I'm usually the, the, the glass half empty guy around technologies. I'm, and I'm on record for this. I think the metaverse is ridiculous. I think um, wearables make no sense. 3D printing was just plain stupid. We have the ultimate 3D printer in the US and Europe. It's called China. And then we have, um, I mean, look at all the others. The, the, the last technology I was this excited NFTs. about. Pardon? NFTs. I mean, that's ended up, I actually thought NFTs would be bigger than they are because I do think that I see my kids paying for digital goods, skins yes. and weapons. So I don't see any reason why we wouldn't assign value to works of art, 
on uh, and basically the idea of an electronic deed. The reality is, though, that the lack of regulation, why everyone wants to go on a screed against government, with no r rules and regulation, you end up with some platforms for NFTs where 50, 50 to 90% of the transactions are wash trading, where it's bad actors with multiple wallets trading NFTs back and forth to send a false signal around their value, hoping someone naive will come in and say, oh, just traded for $2,100. It must be worth that. I'll bid $2,200, when in fact it's worth $200. And the person who bought it for that has just been trading it back and forth, trying to send false signals. So I think people have lost a lot of faith in the NFT market, and we've seen the NFT market crash. That doesn't mean it'll go away. It's just going to be a fraction of what it could have been. And a lot of people will say, well, Scott, you just described the high-end art market. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of people, rich people in art galleries selling stuff back to each other. And I'm like, well, maybe that's true, but... This feels especially egregious. Um, I mean, there's some platforms where they say it's basically all watch trading, hoping dumb people occasionally show up and buy stuff. Yeah. So I don't think NFTs are going to live up to their potential, at least not in the short term. But I think AI is really exciting. And I think the biggest applications will be around healthcare, specifically its ability to uh, more completely model proteins such that we can more have more accurate, specific uh, treatments you know, um, targeted treatments. I think the ability to turn over your data set around your behavior, your health records, and then have predictive models say, in two years, you're going pre-diabetes. <laughs> and these are, the, these are the seven things and how often you need to do to not go pre-diabetes. Mm. You know, this is all of the medications you're taking and your lifestyle, and you're going to feed all this data set in, and we're going to give you, you know, a bunch of lifestyle modification. It, it just... It strikes me that there's just enormous opportunities. And we go to, in the media, it's much easier to catastrophize and imagine the job destruction. But in every technology so far, and there's no reason to believe this will be any different, you have short-term job loss and the innovation creates new businesses we couldn't have even imagined and net-net many more jobs. One in Three and five people made their business in agriculture, made their livings in agriculture in the 20th century in America. Now it's one in 25. Mm -hmm. But we've, you know, no one saw Kroger's or Amazon Grocery or McDonald's. Car, you know, a lot of manufacturing and floor shop jobs have gone away in the auto industry, but we didn't see heated seats or, you know, automatic windshield wipers or car stereos. And those have all created a ton of jobs. So I think the focus will be on job destruction and we'll paint this doomsday scenario of how lawyers and and customer service people are no longer needed and there'll be some truth to that but if you're coming out of, you know if you're coming out of school and you're creative and you're facile with data the opportunity to find different data sets to feed into this thing and then try and sell that information to people i, I think it's going to be really really exciting hmm. I'm, I'm just <clears throat> building on your data point um what happened in financial services, as you'll know, around open banking and the idea that you own the data and you tell the bank, I want to share my data with somebody else, share everything I've got to them. I'm wondering whether that is a wave that's coming into retail. Uh, and, and I say that because some, I mean, for example, in India, there's the legislation now around the ONDC, which is essentially open retail. Uh, of course, there's going to be a lot of resistance from the retailers, especially the big guys. Um, but, but what's your view on that? Is that is that something that might happen anytime soon? Well, that's another. That, yep. Yeah, it's, 
it's a brilliant from, from a consumer perspective wouldn't it be the perfect scenario yeah that's another prediction i got wrong was um one of, one of my tenants around business is that uh, which sheena angar the professor of marketing at columbia university said and that is she wrote the paradox of choice that consumers don't want more choice they want more confidence in the choices presented i think choice mm -hmm. is a tax and the ultimate choice is supposedly people spend 11 minutes a day in the u.s deciding what to watch on netflix um not 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 watching netflix but what to watch and in my house it's a source of huge anxiety we sit down we're gonna have movie night and it's 30 minutes of arguments and and you know screaming around what we're gonna watch and the thing about TikTok, the, the, the power of TikTok is there's no decisions other than to tap on the app. I mean, you can screen, you know, you can you can swipe up if you're not enjoying the video, but it's primarily one network. And it's the right network because it's it's shaping around you. And you don't know how it's shaping around you, but you know it is, and you know that, you know, you can sit down and look up and it's 90 minutes later and you really enjoyed it and the time's just flown. Um the idea i thought that so amazon sort of pioneered this idea of one-click ordering one of my predictions five years ago was that amazon or walmart and TikTok would figure out a way to do zero click ordering and that is there's a number of products in my life um mm. you know I, I do this ulta md sunscreen i love it i love the packaging on it you know and there's just certain things i use Clinique bronzer, you know, I'm at the age where I have such a gross gray pale that I now wear man makeup. And I order these things on a regular basis. And I wonder, okay, and I know the food in our household, uh, 70, 80% of it is rote. And I'm wondering when a retailer says, okay, give us your data or we have your data and mm -hmm. we're going to start sh proactively shipping you two boxes. One box is going to be full of all the stuff we know you like. And by the way, we're going to occasionally put stuff in there that we think will surprise and delight you. Uh, you know, you're exactly the kind of person, just as Netflix recommends Peaky Blinders because you like The Sopranos and, you know, tab, you know, taboo shows that are in that genre. If you like a certain type of organic food, we're going to send you cauliflower milk because people love it who are in your demographic, whatever it is. And we're going to send you a second box. And the second box is empty and you just put in the stuff you don't like. And we'll just start shaping and getting, you know, and you'll pay a fee. But um, I'm shocked it hasn't happened in a more vigorous fashion. I want, you know, especially around clothes, there's a lot of us. There's some people who are passionate about fashion and have such skill. They enjoy going and assembling things that are just kind of genius for them. And they really enjoy it. I would like all of my clothes to ship to me. We, you know, by someone who's like, I have better we have better taste than you. We know your job. We know your economic weight class. This is just approximate, you know, this is just, and you get, just get stuff on a regular basis, right? I get back, you know, I travel a lot. When I travel, I lose everything. So I need more replenishment. Um, but I, I would think that I'm shocked it hasn't happened. And every time I've, you know, I've, I've consulted to probably 20 of the 30 biggest retailers in the world. And I brought up this idea several times and even to companies like PNG and Unilever and they, they get it, they see the potential, but it still doesn't match the business model of piling stuff onto a, uh, you know, 
a, a, a pallet and shipping it into this warehouse and having other people come and pick their own stuff out. It still doesn't, yeah. the, the, the amount of money on programming and returns, it still doesn't pay off, so they're not doing it. But I'm wondering, you know, that's the equivalent of a personal shopper, right? Yeah. And this yeah. sounds very privileged, and it is, but when I go to my home in New York, my assistant goes and puts in granola and almond milk and you know the, the the stuff I like, I'm not sure she should be doing that. It strikes me that there should be a retailer doing that. So I, I think that's coming, um, but it hasn't yeah. happened as fast as I thought it was going to. Um, I could talk to you forever. Maybe finally, any uh, any other sort of trend and developments you see in retail or hospitality, Scott, and any advice for retailers and uh, restaurant owners? I mean, I go to the same places. I would say get off your heels and on your toes. I go to the same, when I'm in New York, I go to the same, I'm in an age where I'm very, I'm very predictable. I go to the same places to eat. I have sort of the same patterns. I stay at the same places. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by hotels. I love hotels. I will travel to a hotel, not a city. If I hear the Soho house in Istanbul is amazing, I go to Istanbul, yeah. not to go to Istanbul, but to go to the Soho house in Istanbul. Yeah. There's a new, there's a new, um, you know, uh, six senses in Thailand that's supposed to be amazing. That's right. I, I go to hotels. At some point, someone's going to take my data whether it's the four seasons mm -hmm. and in conjunction with, I spent a lot of money on travel. That's where I spend my money. And they're going to take my data and go, okay, this is exactly the kind of, you know, this is a guy who has money and wants to hang out with people who are younger and more interesting than him and <laughs> hang out at these aspirational places. And here's, and just say, okay, we know you usually take two weeks. This is the new Cheval Blanc in the Maldives. And we've, we've blocked seven seven days for you and you have 48 hours to confirm it i mean i just think yeah. the you know i uh, i've worked my ass off for 30 years i'm economically secure now i spend a crazy amount of money on travel and i'm mm -hmm. all that money is up for grabs and i do enjoy and researching they have all of the data. and they know it mm. i mean they especially some of these high-end hotel brands that I've stayed at, I'm, you know, I'm on the road 100, 150 nights a year, but somebody's gonna go, yeah. you know, why are we on our heels paying Amazon and TripAdvisor and Google to try and capture him when he's looking? We know yeah. 60, 70%, we can kind of figure out what he's gonna want and what type of hotel he's gonna want and where, yeah. when he's gonna want it, why wouldn't we send an email saying, you know, I'm a member of Soho House. We're opening a Soho House in Barcelona. It's amazing. It's hip. It's cool. We see you live in London. We mm -hmm. see that you always take President's Day. You know, we, we've, 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 we've upgraded you from X to Y room. These are the yeah. three restaurants you want a reservation at. We, we're holding all of this for 48 hours. I mean, it's just like, what is that? That's worth 10 grand at 50, 70 points of margin for someone smart with some processing power. And I don't yeah. see that as a violation of privacy. I, 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 I'm never, I'm always looking for ideas. So I think the same is true of restaurants. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to the same place, if I'm going to Jack's Wife Frida every Sunday morning, 
in New York when I'm there. At some point, they're going to start sending me emails saying, we were looking forward to seeing you at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Press yeah. yes or no. Also, I just don't think there should ever be a restaurant or a hotel checkout. I just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Just I should never. Yeah, yeah. There should so never be. Not only should there never be a checkout, there should never be a check-in. Hmm. Uh, on my way to the airport, they GPS, they they near field me, and they're like, "Oh, we see you on your way in. Here's a map of the restaurant. Here's your table. Just go sit down." And this is the drink you want, and they don't probably want to order for you because you like some variety there. But when you're ready, yeah. you just leave. We know you. We know who you are. We've taken your credit card about a billion times. Yeah. We know you tip twenty to twenty-five percent. We'll, we'll settle at twenty-two. We'll send you a receipt. Get me in. The, the the friction getting into your table and getting out for hotels and restaurants are a huge opportunity. And whoever does that first is going to get a lot of press. And you also feel really important if you're on a date or you're with a business executive and you say, "Okay, we're ready. Let's leave." You mm. just you you feel like a baller, right? Mm. And and also paying is awkward with strangers. There's that weird moment. Oh, I'll pay. No, you split the next right. one. And a day, it just yeah. get rid of that. Anyways, I think that I think payments, seamlessness, trust. And when I'm going yeah. to a hotel and I can't for the life of me figure out why they haven't done this, I go to the I stay at the same the same hotel every time I go to LA. They know I'm gonna go, make my reservation, they see I've landed, they see my flight, they use flight tracker, and they send me. They send me a QR code and they say, you're in room 708, scan the QR code over there. I don't want to check in. That's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. I don't want anyone to touch my bags. I don't want, I don't want someone telling me about the spot. I just, I know everything about this goddamn hotel. Just give me my room and let me get to my room. Full stop. Anyways, I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity. That's uh, brilliant thoughts of Scott. And actually you can, as I do every week, uh, dial into his podcasts, which are absolutely 100% fantastic every single week. Um, always controversial, always on point. So I do advise you, if you want to continue listening to Scott, do, do dial into that. Scott, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on the future of uh, retail and hospitality. Really enjoyed the discussion and conversation. Um, before we go, any final thoughts you want to share with our audience? No, Ishmael, congratulations on your success. And I really enjoyed this interview. You're, you're, you're good at this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, do join us again for other, other, other podcasts that we're going to do with other guests. Um, I look forward to seeing you again on the NCR Commerce Cast. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.